Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Lessons for the Church, with a message entitled, The Church Deals with Sin. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I don't know if I can stress this enough, but I believe that Matthew 18, 15 to 20 might just be the key to a revival in your church. Let me speak more broadly. Faithfully practicing the teaching of Jesus recorded in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 might just be the key to a great revival in the North American church. Let me try to state that even another way. Because so few of us practice what Jesus taught us in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, a great malaise has fallen upon so many churches and individual Christians. So let's talk about Matthew 18, 15 to 20. But before we talk about it, of course, let's read it. These are the words of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now we've been studying Matthew 18. It contains the fourth of the five discourses of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Jesus has been warning against displaying an attitude of contempt towards others that might lead them into sin. Be careful, he warns, lest you cause someone to stumble. Instead, be like your heavenly Father. You should actively pursue lost sheep. Don't let them merely drift away. Go after them. Bring them back into the fellowship of God's people. Okay, but now imagine the shoe is on the other foot. Imagine now that you're not the person who causes someone to stumble. Imagine that you're the person who has sinned against. What someone else has done has caused you to stumble. What then? I need to stop for a moment and point something out that might give some insight into what Jesus meant. Some of the very old and very reliable manuscripts actually omit the words against you. Now, if that's right, that the text should read, if your brother sins without reference to whether the sin is against you or not, well, it does change the meaning slightly. And furthermore, in Luke's gospel, Luke gives a very abbreviated form of this teaching. I'm reading Luke 17, verse 3, which simply says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We notice there that there is no reference to whether the sin is against the person in question or whether the brother is simply sinning. And then someone else goes to him and her and points it out. You know, for my part, I I think it actually doesn't matter if the sin is against us personally or if the sin is noticeable to all. But here, I, I must be careful. I don't think Jesus is calling us to, you know, simply stick our nose into everyone else's business. I think he's speaking about sins that are obvious or ones that are done in close proximity to us or against us. Either a sin has been done against you and has wounded you, or you have noticed a sinning brother. And the motivation has to be a God who loves lost sheep and goes after the lost sheep and brings them home. 
It's in keeping with what James said in James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's, that's the motivation. Love, compassion, mercy for those who, if they are allowed to continue in their sin, may just fall from grace. It turns out that God has devised a means of grace whereby he brings his erring children back. That grace is called the church. The church is God's tool to keep us in his grace. Now, of course, that happens proactively as we gather together on the Lord's Day. We sing together and we hear God's word preached. The presentation of God's word does speak to our souls. It arrests our tendency to wander. It renews our focus on God. It also happens in, you know, our home Bible studies and so many other ways as God's people gather and encourage one another to remain faithful, to keep walking in the Spirit. But sin does occur. And so there's a God-given tool to correct a sinner. Go just between the two of you. Show your brother or your sister their sin. Be gracious to them. Point it out. So stop for a moment and consider what happens most of the time. When someone sins against us, we don't go to that person. We go to everyone else. We tell a number of people. We make sure everybody knows. And so, so long before anyone confronts that individual, we've already shared that problem with you know, a host of people. It violates the teaching of Jesus to do that. We are required to ignore all the others and go directly to that person. You know, I've been to church meetings in which someone's behavior is discussed, and it turns out no one has talked to that person. And this in spite of the fact that Jesus has given us these direct instructions as to what must be done in these cases. Instead of someone either sins against you or you've noticed an obvious sin in another, You're commanded by our Lord and Savior to go to that person. Don't you ignore the sin. Don't let it settle until you become bitter. If at all possible, go immediately. There's an old Dutch and German saying, I've actually never heard it, but apparently it's true that it speaks of a meeting that happens just between four eyes. Nice. I think it says it well. And Jesus never says whether that meeting happens only once or these two people continue to meet. I suppose it all depends on the circumstances, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't spell out how the meeting should be arranged or what should be said, but it's a confrontation of sin. And sin among people who love each other is an issue, and it must not, according to Jesus, be ignored. He commands you to go to that person, point out the sin. This is sensitive because, you know, in our culture, we believe people should stay out of other people's business. I mean, what business is it of yours to judge me, we say? Jesus turns that around. If you see a fellow believer in sin, do you not have an obligation? It turns out you are your brother's keeper. And here's the reward. If it succeeds, you've won your brother. It's lovely. Let me play out a scenario. Let's say that you have a Christian brother who works with you. He's married. He has three lovely children. But you also notice he's flirting with a female employee. They go out to long lunches. You notice the signs of a romance the things they say to each other, the way he brushes her hair at one point in time, the way they look at each other. And so you take initiative, you intervene. Brother, I've noticed your infatuation. You are now standing in the place where many a man before you has shipwrecked his faith. It's time to repent. At first he resists, nothing's going on, he says, but you persist. 
How about we ask your wife to come to one of those luncheon meetings the two of you have? Would that be awkward for you? Yeah, I think it would. And brother, I'm here to say that the Lord Jesus loves you enough to put me in your way. Well, now imagine that then in agony, the brother confesses they've already had sex and he begins to weep. Well, now your brother has been brought back from the brink. You've been like the the shepherd who's gone after a, a lost sheep. Well, now, but, but what happens if the meeting goes badly, we say? Or, or for that matter, what happens if the brother or sister disagrees with you? It wasn't sin at all, he says. All sorts of things can go wrong in, in one of these encounters. So what do you do? Do you simply leave it? You say, well, I guess I've done my best. Now, some of us are tempted to do exactly that. I have done my best. I've been Ezekiel's watchman on the wall. If they don't respond, their blood is on their own hands. But Jesus now intervenes, and he tests the limits of our love. So we move to step two. If we will be faithful to our Lord, if that person refuses to listen between the two of us, we will take one or two others along. Now here, notice, Jesus adds the words that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. And and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15. And that passage says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so what Jesus has in mind is that one or two that go along establish that the sin has indeed been taking place. That's where it should be clear to us that Jesus is ruling out the power of one person alone to determine if there's a sin. You know, I have a memory that on one occasion, I was that witness. I was the person taken along. And amazingly, I came to a conclusion that yes, the man in question had sin, but the sin was not even close to being as serious as the person making the charges said it was. And that changed everything. You see, Jesus demands that when one person says to another, you've sinned, and then the second person says, no, 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 I did not that the matter must now be looked at and weighed and spoken to by a third party, preferably someone who is spiritually mature and not biased. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Once we read Matthew 18, 15 to 20, it's a very clear picture that emerges. Church discipline is mandated. Churches that refuse to practice it are simply not following our Lord. However, church discipline 
is the very last resort. It only happens when every effort to win the erring brother or sister has been thoroughly exhausted. Let me tell a story that comes from the the bad old days. You know, many years ago, some churches made a practice that whenever a young unmarried woman was found pregnant out of wedlock, she was then forced to confess her sin during an open business meeting of the church. I hope you can see that would have been quite an order if you had been there to ask, before this girl gets up, I'd like to know whether someone from the church has met privately with her just one-on-one. And just for argument's sake, let's say that's all happened. And then let's say the young woman has repented. She says, I've sinned. I want to make this right with the Lord. Well, then if that has happened, what in the world is she doing in front of the church? For churches that acted this way, they were sinning against Jesus, who demanded that such public action must never, never, never take place when someone has already been genuinely repentant in private. No one goes to the church if they're repentant. It's simply an ugly and ungodly chapter in our history that we have allowed such theater to take place. It was abusive. May God forgive us such wrongdoing. But now let's say we have a sinning brother. Just four eyes were in the room. The brother's unwilling to repent. One or two others have gone. They've seen the sin was real. The brother is still unwilling to repent. What happens then? Well, at that moment, it becomes a church matter. And as an aside, I know that when Jesus taught this, a church had not yet come into being. And I would assume that the disciples would probably have understood Jesus' use of the word church to simply refer to an assembly of the followers of Jesus. But later, when the church had been formed, it was quite natural then to take this teaching and apply it to the local church, and that's what we must do. But what does it mean to tell it to the church? Well, for one, a church is a locally organized fellowship of believers. In the pages of the New Testament, a very clear picture emerges. The idea is obvious that the New Testament never conceived of any follower of Jesus who wasn't a part of a local church. To follow Jesus means we follow him in the fellowship of the local church. And for that reason, the possibility of removing someone from the church means to remove them from the people of God, to treat them as an unbeliever. And throughout history, that's been called excommunication. And so we have to imagine that stage three has now occurred. The one-to-one meeting has failed. The meeting with the two witnesses has failed. Now the church leadership is involved, and they too see this person refuses to repent of a genuine, known, and serious sin. And when Jesus says, tell it to the church, does he mean a public announcement be made, let's say on Sunday morning? Well, Jesus doesn't specify, does he? At the very least, I would think that everyone that needs to know should know. Not to destroy someone's reputation, not for that reason, but to remove them from fellowship and to stress the importance of dealing with sin. That's exactly what we see spelled out in 1 Corinthians 5. In the church in Corinth, a man was having sexual relations with his stepmother. He refuses to repent. And so verses 4 and 5 says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is, putting someone out of the church may well make that man realize that they're outside of the grace of God. It might shock them back to their senses. Or it might not. So let's go to the matter of binding and loosing. 
Jesus is speaking to his church, and he tells them whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. Now, within the context, binding and loosing refers either binding someone over in their sins or loosing them from their sins. If you go back to Matthew 16, you're going to remember there that Jesus announced that he had given his church the keys of the kingdom. And you might also remember that when we discussed that passage, we said that the Greek grammar indicates that whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And that, of course, means that the church is following the lead of heaven. No, it's not the other way around. Heaven doesn't follow the lead of the local church. But here in Matthew 18, Jesus is saying that one of the roles that he has entrusted to his church is to announce to repentant Christians that their sins have been forgiven. And one of the roles of the church is to announce to the unrepentant that their sins have not been forgiven, that they are bound over in them if they will not repent. Now, in our day, with hundreds of different denominations and independent churches on top of that, here's why this doesn't work very well. Someone commits adultery, let's say. They don't repent. He then divorces his wife. Still no repentance. He begins to live with another woman. Still no repentance. He eventually marries her, moves to a different church, becomes a member, and that ends the matter. Very many different churches, all independent of one another, make this matter of binding and loosing almost meaningless to most people. So... Since this is the case, what is to be done? See, the matter of binding and loosing is almost never practiced. Church discipline seems to be a relic of a bygone era. And when personal holiness is not insisted on by the local church, what then? Is personal holiness simply a matter of personal convictions? Let's just say it. The lack of discipline, the clear absence of standards of holy conduct that must be insisted on If that's lacking, this lack, it's a curse to any church. And the evidence of the curse is everywhere felt. We can believe whatever we want and not be held to account, we say. If someone sins, one prays, the Holy Spirit will convict them. But then if they don't repent, you and I hear this all the time. People say, well, who am I to judge? Even though Jesus commanded us to make right judgments, and even though he insisted that the church use the tools of the keys of the kingdom, those those powerful keys that impact the holiness of believers, encourage us to live in the fear of the Lord. It seems like we've discarded them, put them in a back drawer somewhere. We haven't pulled them out in decades. And God's people are getting the idea that they can carry on in unrepentant sin without ever having to give an account. We're in desperate need of revival. Let me make a modest proposal for dusting off the keys of the kingdom once more. Whenever any church takes on a new member, they ought to ask if that person has had a previous church. A letter should be requested from that previous church stating whether or not that person left the church in good standing. If they did not, or if they had been excommunicated, a thorough search should be made to examine carefully the reasons why this has occurred. If it is determined that the potential new member is continuing on in unrepentant sin and will not be reconciled with their former church, it would be wonderful if no new church would welcome them. This is a matter of great concern. It is, quite frankly, a sin against Jesus himself that we will not use the keys of the kingdom. Well, now, we look at the last two verses. First, verse 19. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So please notice, according to the text, the anything that we ask for, that's got to relate to the wisdom that we need from God when dealing with matters of church discipline. We're given the assurance that God will direct us to apply discipline in obedience to the commands of Jesus and also showing grace and mercy to sinners. And then, very last verse, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Notice again the context. Jesus is not simply saying that whenever the church gathers, I'm in the midst of them. Of course, Jesus is always among us. That's not the question. But I'm talking about the context here. Jesus is saying that whenever believers need to gather to make decisions of the kind that he has spoken about, regarding the disciplining of believers who say they're believers but won't repent. Notice, they won't be alone. Jesus will be in the midst of them. He will give them wisdom as they act in accordance to the principles that he has already laid down. Church discipline reflects God's holiness. In a fallen and sinful world, Jesus is calling his church to reflect both his holiness and his mercy. May the Lord give us wisdom so that his church will reflect the true character of our Lord. And, O Lord, we pray, send us revival. John, so many questions come to mind from this message. I guess the the very base one is, does anybody believe in sin anymore? And as a result of that, or even if you do, are we afraid to even confront sin because we're afraid of litigation? And and, And the story goes on and on and on. But at the very base level, do we even believe in sin? You know, Ben, uh, I think that the the need for revival in the North American church is so great at this point in time. And I do think it's because we've not taken seriously the holiness of God, the weight of our own sin. And, you know, maybe we're just so biblically ignorant that we, we don't even understand what sin actually is. But now to become proactive, to say, I'm not going to let sin lie when I see it in another. In fact, I'm going to deal with it not by talking to everybody else. I'm going to talk to them. It's going to be loving, but it's going to be pointed. And we're going to recognize that Christ calls us to walk holy. And then, therefore, I also know that other people are watching me. And so together, we're on this this road together. So I, I think this may be a key to revival. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Lessons for the Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Now's the time to place the gathering in your calendar. Join us online via Facebook Live this coming Sunday, September 19th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 Central or 8 Eastern for a celebration of God's faithfulness. Be blessed by the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld as we investigate Psalm 138. Enjoy host Phil Calloway of Laugh Again and be inspired and blessed by special musical guest Laura Hastings as we worship, fellowship, and celebrate God's Word together. For more information about the gathering and to ensure you're in the right spot at the right time, visit backtothebible.ca slash gathering or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
Join friends and the family of God at the gathering from right across the country for an hour of celebrating God's faithfulness together this Sunday, September 19th. Look forward to seeing you there.